0: Welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that value is why your company exists. And that means you need to get everybody in your company engaged in delivering value. Today, I am thrilled to have Evan Dash, who is the CEO and founder of Storebound. And uh, Evan, welcome.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me, Mark.
0: So you, Evan founded his company after a, a long career as an executive at a variety of different, mostly retailers, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, founded Storebound in, in 2010. Yep. And uh, has grown that. Um, and I was, I you know, go ahead and tell a little bit of the story because I, I don't want to. I want to make sure people get that background because it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I came up in um, in department store retailing, and I went into retail pretty much after my dad told me not to that I should go seek a job in finance or something else and not be beholden to to the customer and such a changing marketplace. So I said, you know, I'll show you, and I followed in his footsteps, and um, and the retail um, retail world was really kind to me, taught me everything, every different aspect about business. So within a department store, you've got buying and, and finance and, um, and merchandising and loss prevention and logistics and pretty much every, it's like its own mini economy. So it was an incredible place to learn and, and hone my business acumen. And um, through the years, I got experience in just about every business category across a number of different companies. And as soon as I would get the itch to go to business school, I would get promoted and i get re- re-energized. And I worked my way up to senior vice president at Macy's where I was running a multi-billion dollar home business. And I had over a thousand suppliers who were selling products to us. And every day when my phone would ring or my email would, would beep, my day got worse. And it was always a supplier doing something that made my day worse. So I had this idea with uh, my wife, Rachel, back in probably 2008, when we were coming out of the financial crisis that we should try to, to structure a product company be innovative and nimble, but really add value to the retailers and be kind of the anti supplier, we would be the guys who you wanted to hear from, because we'll solve your problems will make will make things better we will add value to your business, because we've sat in your seat and we really understand what your pressures and challenges are
0: that story just really rings true to me because, you know, in my book and in radical value, I talk about delivering value and discovering all the players who have an impact on your success and all the players uh, where you can deliver a better outcome. And so many times, uh, especially in consumer goods, we forget the retailer, we forget our channel and the channel, our channel to a customer is where we succeed. And it seems so simple, but there's all these companies, Uh, that didn't get that. You had a thousand vendors and it felt like none of them got the idea of being retailer friendly.
1: They, They were all focused on their own business all the time. And it was every piece of the agenda was their agenda. And they didn't understand what my pressures were. They didn't understand what I really needed. And despite talking until I was blue in the face, they were more focused on their needs than my needs. And we really believe that we don't have to do business with everyone because we probably can't add value to everyone. But the ones that we could truly add value to, boy, could we add a lot of value. So we we built the business on that, that premise. But we also, we started at a time that e-commerce was just exploding. And most of my, my peers and friends and network said forget about the retailers you should be going direct to consumer and we just felt that the opportunity to add value to retailers and tap into these massive pipelines that were already built was easier than figuring out how to ship one product one product one product one product all over all over the country so we stuck to our guns about being a retail centric um, forward company and that was really a critical decision. I'm glad we, we made it the way we did.
0: Yeah, uh, really interesting. You know, I, I have that same experience from a, through a different people. Uh, I was a sales performance consultant. I was part of the world's largest B2B sales training company. And so there was 275 of me, right? Other consultants like myself over the course of the nine years I was there. And we all agreed when we would get together for our global meetings, uh, and we would look at the part of the sales training that sales people the world over in every single industry in the world did the worst, and it was always the same one. And it was the salesperson and the selling company as a result never understanding the outcomes of that customer wants to achieve, and so it's not just you're not special. So, sorry, Evan. It's not just that companies aren't good at understanding what the retailer wants. Companies aren't even good at understanding what their customers want. They won't. They know what they want. Um, so, uh, <laughs> not to make you feel less special, but salespeople the world over stink at this stuff.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I I pride myself on never having a minute's worth of sales training. And when I started the company, I had a friend who was like the consummate salesman who said to me, do you really think you're going to be able to sell? And I said, look, I worked in a giant corporation. That's all I do all day long is sell. But I sell in a way that I'm selling what I need to the benefit of somebody else so that it becomes a win-win situation. So I approach selling as I've got to be passionate about it so first of all we have to sell a product that i really believe in that i believe is going to help somebody because i'm not a good enough salesperson to go up there and just sling whatever they tell me to to, to sling for whatever reason i have to feel really good about it and following that path of selling to people in the way that i wanted to be sold to that's proved to be a winning formula. And it's so unbelievably simple that it's amazing that more, more people, more companies don't really push people in that direction.
0: Yeah, it, it, is, it is amazingly simple, um, but we, we start people off on the wrong path. Here's my theory, tell me, you know, agree or disagree. We start people off on the wrong path. When we first hire people, we put them through our training and our product training. And we teach them all the speeds and the feeds and the features and the benefits and the specs and the competitors. And and the first two dozen sales calls you go on, you're so proud of that newly acquired information. You barf it at customers, not because you think they want to know, not because you think they care, but because you're still practicing what you learned in product training. And so now you're developing this rut, this habit of talking about your stuff. And none of that training was ever about, here's how we grow our customer's business using our stuff. It's always about, here's how we sell our stuff at people.
1: Totally agree. And um, and also acknowledge that that was the case when we started the company. And our way to overcome that was essentially to hire people who to only hire people for our sales positions who have been in the buyer's seat for their career. We didn't want salespeople. We wanted buyers so that they would be able to do what we were doing and sell to people the way that we wanted to be sold to as buyers. So we felt that that retail knowledge and retail expertise was the only way to truly deliver value to the retailers.
0: That's outstanding. And I think you are purposeful about it, but I can reinforce, based on my experience, that uh, salespeople are good about pressing their agenda. And if you're going to pursue a corporate strategy of being retailer friendly, um, the experience pool in the sales or you know in the sales world, every one of your the resumes you would see with sales experience has no experience in that or is very unlikely to have experience in that. Right. I, won't, I won't say it because I have met a couple of great salespeople who do that. And it's strange that so few sales leaders can see that that's what's different about this person.
1: Yeah, I think salespeople are so rewarded for meeting quotas, no matter what the, the true cost of that is. And it creates a, a culture that's obsessed with the numbers and productivity rather than what's the true end result of what you're achieving.
0: Yeah, I still clearly remember one uh, one big retailer wanted a series of a dozen loans for a dozen different stores. Uh, I remember going when after a whole bunch of discovery with all the different players, uh, we got people in a conference room and there was the CFO and the head, the lead counsel and the stores person and the property person. And I went around the room one by one in order. I said, This is what you said you wanted, right? This is what you said you needed to have. This is what you said you needed to have. This is what you and around the room to the CFO and everybody. And I said, I've got great news. I've got it all right here. Amazing. Now, the interest rate isn't competitive with, you know, it isn't what you're going to pay for something that doesn't get you all these, but I can get every single one of you what you need. And it was. It, it's pretty special and pretty unique, and nobody else can do it. So we are much higher interest rate than everybody. There was no asking for the deal. Yeah, <laughs> it was... I mean, that,
1: it, it's incredible how how unusual that is, and just that simple approach of understanding what others need, asking the question. I mean, you went in there knowing what do they need because you obviously went in and you cared about their agenda versus your own agenda. Yeah. You figured out how to make those two
0: intersect. Yeah, sure. You know, that was the crescendo of a dozen different meetings with each of those people uh, prior. It was hard won wisdom. But uh, when, you can, when you can walk into somebody and say, I've met everybody's needs with this pr- proposed deal structure, um, it got really easy from there. So let's get back to your business, though. Um, how have your customers changed Uh, I'm talking about the end consumers and retailers. How have they changed through the course of the COVID pandemic and coming out?
1: Well, I mean, the, the COVID pandemic was something that we could have never fathomed, that we'd be living in the kind of conditions and dealing with the kind of circumstances that we, that we were. So we've got a, a relatively small, nimble team and we treat the team like, like family. And we believe that, you know, as much as we talk about adding value to our retailers, we, we obsess over adding value to our team in-house and the end, end consumer. So the first thing we did was we really retrenched and we said, we've got to stress test our financials, make sure that, we're, that we can come through this If business just stops. And we spent a lot of time with the financials and we pulled everybody together and we said, we want everybody to know that we've stress tested the financials and everybody's livelihood is fine. Okay. We want you to be comfortable. We're all going to be dealing with some really heavy personal stuff and the world is going to change. And the last thing we want you to do is worry about your livelihood. We believe that This is going to be lockdown and less people eating out, so therefore more meals eating at home. And lo and behold, we sell products to help you um, eat healthy meals at home and prepare healthy meals at home. So we felt like there could be some natural tailwinds in, in our business, but that certainly wasn't the case for the first few months as all of our retailers shut down and as California started to shut down and we were concerned over our warehouse. But what we did was we used it as an an opportunity to stay incredibly close to our people, um, our retailers, and to really ramp up the way that we communicated with the end consumer through our large social media following. So we've seen um, a lot of change that I think is kind of human nature changes when you go something through something like this, where there's first there's fear and then slowly build up frustration and then it builds into more confidence. And we try to, to try to support people throughout that entire journey. And we're doing the same thing with the return to work. So now that we're seeing the world start to reopen or certainly America start to reopen where most of our business is done, we're seeing uh, a lot of a lot of our business slow down in the in the sell throughs with our retailers as the retailers see bigger increases in shoes and dresses and fragrance and all those things that people want as they get back out there. And we know anecdotally, I mean, I know somebody who has 20 weddings coming up in a three-month period because all of these weddings have been pushed off. So we're trying to just stay in tune with exactly what the end consumer needs, our retailer needs, and our employees need on the team and try to deliver those things every day what's changed the most is how much it continues to change and how rapidly it it changes and you and i have talked about being agile today to me agile is akin to survival i mean that is truly the piece of our dna that has enabled us to survive and thrive and will continue to put distance between us and our competition in the next several months and years
0: yeah i couldn't agree more evan i Uh, You know, the soundbite I put out is, you know, we used to tell ourselves the only constant was change. And then 2020 happened. And then 2021 said, here, hold my beer. There will be no new normal. There will be a rolling storm of wave after wave after wave of change. The new normal will not be singular. There will be ever changing new normals, which means that as a corporate leader, as a CEO, you can no longer do what business school leaders kind of told you the theory was, was that the leader sees the world, understands what has to happen, decides on a change plan and deploys that change plan uh, as a step, single step change throughout their organization. That is out of touch operational doctrine. And now you have to design agility from the outside in, from the customer in, from everybody in and build agility into your organization.
1: Yeah, it it is absolutely critical. And we've always talked about companies that pivot and I never wanna be in the position where we have to pivot because I think that companies that are in that position typically have had the blinders on to market, market forces and they haven't evolved. And it put them in a position to require this huge disruptive pivot. We are very fluid, we talk every day, we build agility into everything that we do by empowering great people to make the decisions that they were hired to make and to do the jobs that they were um, hired to do without the second guessing. And Rachel and I always say that everybody who has a seat in our office or now a box on the Zoom screen is better at what they do than we are. So why would we slow them down? Why would we add more frustration in into the day? It starts with getting the right people and that's really how we've designed agility in from the from the the very start of the company. So it put us in a great position for these types of times when everything is changing so rapidly that we're able to be fluid and we're able to continue to evolve. And there is just nothing that is Similar in our business today to when we started the company, other than the core philosophies that we have, but everything else has evolved.
0: The core philosophies are the guide rails, a guiding vision. And you have to, your core vision is, you know, near and dear to my heart is to provide value to retailers and end consumers. Mm-hmm. So your vision is about your value, which you know, of course, of course I love because I'm totally biased about understanding customer value. Um, you, you reminded me when you're talking about pivots, uh, I know a small business leader who says she hates the word pivot. Uh, and she and her husband use the term, Oh, plot twist. <laughs> 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 and so everything is a plot twist. And now how are we going to respond to a plot twist? And I uh, that, you know, it's funny and it's clever and it's kind of flip, but it talks to, it speaks to the fact that you have to expect the change and it's just, it's just part of your business's storyline.
1: Absolutely. you've to. I mean, you really have to embrace it and realize that every time the changes occur, it's an opportunity to put more distance between you and your competition and further endear yourself to, to your consumers. And we always talk about, I, I use the, the analogy for some reason, my parents who never ice skated decided I would play ice hockey when I was very little. And one of the first lessons when I was playing hockey that the coach taught me is you don't pass the puck to where the player is, you pass it to where they're going. And I brought that into business thinking about we have to be aware of where the consumer is moving, where our customers are moving so that we can be positioning the business to, to that location.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, I use that in some sales training uh, that your job as a salesperson uh, is to do the discovery to find out where your customer is going so that you can be standing at the next train stop saying, I've been waiting for you. Welcome. Let me show you around. This is where you're going. And this is what your next stop looks like. And um people get that, but you know the, the actual exercise of asking those questions of, of a customer, where are you going? Not where I want to take you, but where do you want to go? And sometimes that means building a brand new rail line to something that's not on your network. Do you have a, a story uh, of an innovation that somebody on your team um, came up with that was high value to your customer and it came from uh, not the executive on high, but came from some unexpected corner of your of somebody at Storebound.
1: I mean, I'll tell you one of the one of the things that was was so in- incredibly defining, and we talk about this all the time because we we beat into our team. We are a product company, and it doesn't matter what your role is in in the business. We're product company. You derive your your income and your livelihood from the products that we sell, and everybody is on on the team. Is a consumer. You might not be an engineer or a designer or a product expert, but you're a consumer, and your voice is as important as anybody else's. So we do a lot of um, we do a lot of group brainstorming, but at the end of the, at the end of the day, one of the most interesting um, kind of innovation twists was and it was born out of need. We we started a company in a big category against players with deep pockets, and we couldn't afford to market ourselves. And we had a, a relatively unknown brand. We couldn't afford to market themselves with big paid campaigns. What we could afford to do was create great content for social media. And we were embarking down the road of, uh, of a big Facebook strategy. And it was in the early days of Instagram. And my kids who were about Um, seven and nine were at the time were in the office, maybe they were eight and 10, and they were on Instagram where all of us were on Facebook. And my head of marketing looked at what they were doing and started looking at the way they were connecting with Instagram and said, "We, we are out of our minds. We should not be doing Facebook. We should be doing Instagram. And we, in the first 18 months, sailed to over a million followers, got the biggest voice in our entire industry and we retain that voice today through social media that we've been able to to put our content out there and connect with the consumer in a way that our competitors can't so the the way that we've gone to market and the way that we communicate was a major innovation the other innovation that's built into our model is um, the desire to fail fast we want. To, if we're going to fail, we want to know quickly. We want to get things into the best into the best format to figure out if we're going to fail. Let's do it now and let's freaking celebrate it, um, because if we don't fail now and we're going to fail later, it's going to be really expensive and really demoralizing. So those are a couple of innovations that are built in. And then in in terms of our business. Every every product brainstorming session, a great idea comes from the place that you wouldn't expect it to come from. And that could even be our customers bring it to us, consumers bring it to us, but the person in finance has awesome product ideas because they cook food in their kitchen and they have frustrations. So, bringing all those things together, you've gotta to be innovating all the time and have no preconceived notions on where that innovation is gonna come from, where those great ideas are gonna
0: come from. That's great. So um, you're, do you, because of this uh, social media genesis of your company, are, do your consumers skew a little on the young side?
1: Absolutely. So we we know that we're the number one brand amongst millennials And our marketing team loves to talk about how my my parents registered for the big brands that are in our our category. When they got married 50 years ago, they registered for Black & Decker and Oster and Farberware and um, KitchenAid and those iconic brands. Because we've endeared ourselves to millennials, they're growing up with us and they don't remember a time that we weren't there to make their lives easier. They're influencing their parents and baby boomers and they're the ones who are getting married and registering for kitchen products. They're the ones buying new homes now and going through those life events. So the fact that we use social media allowed us to endear ourselves to a a generation that embraced us as social currency, something new to discover, company that was doing good things, designs that resonated with them. And that's allowed us to Gain traction in the market very, very quickly when we wouldn't have been able to do that with older generations who were already very brand loyal.
0: Yeah. You know, um, when I talk about value, and, and mostly I work with business to business companies. So value means a uh, customer business outcome very often, and maybe the personal outcome that the vice president of whatever achieves because we help them deliver on a KPI that they had with consumer products. Value is often described as the experience. Yeah. Um, when I walk into REI, the recreational equipment incorporated, yeah. I love the person I become. When I walk through those doors, I become more adventurous, more outdoorsy, more fit than I really am. Yeah. And um, the experience of who you become is a huge part of, success in a consumer brand. And so hats off for the fact that you're really riding that. And uh, sounds like you've got a partner who recognizes that and who's uh, helping you with the next stage of your company growth.
1: Yeah. So we um, we didn't take the decision to bring on a partner lightly. We searched for about four years and we um, heeded a lot of advice that was figure out what you're going to do from a partnership or next round of financing before you need it. You never want to go out and figure out your financing when you need it. So we were really looking at the future, taking our time and truly understood that uh, we didn't want money alone. We wanted a relationship. You know, Money, like you said before, the ultimate commodity. We wanted the, the extra value. And we understood that when we brought somebody in, we would now have Um, different responsibility to to that person. So we didn't take it lightly. And we searched for about four years and we decided that none of the the private equity companies that we met with or family offices truly were the right partners for where we wanted to take the business. And lo and behold, a strategic reached out to us and they happened to be the most... uh, well-respected largest company in our industry, they date back to the mid 1800s. And it's a company that I bought from for years, admired for, for years. And when we had the opportunity to partner, we spent well over a year getting to know each other and simulating different situations. What would happen in this situation? What would happen in this situation? Talking to them about issues that come up in the business. What do you think that we should do? every minute we spent with them, we felt closer and closer. And we felt that it was um, the situation just grew more and more right. So last summer, we made the decision that we would sell a majority interest to Group Seb, the um, $8 billion publicly listed um, French housewares company that operates in 150 countries. They've got over 40 factories and truly amazing, amazing people. And um, people ask me if the, the relationship's going the way that we expected, and it, it's not. It's going far better than what we expected because we knew that we were both on our best behavior trying to get a deal done, but everything that they told us and everything that we told them, we, we've we stuck to. And it's been a very, very productive, um, empowering partnership, and really glad that we made the decision when we did.
0: So. That's wonderful. They're, they're helping you execute. You're obviously teaching them um, about marketing into a, a, a group or into a customer base that they're not as successful as they probably want to be. So you're, at, I mean, you're each adding so much value to each other, which is the ultimate win and the ultimate exchange of value um, rather than making it an exchange of money. Uh, great decision. Thank you for, for sharing that, Evan. Sure. And uh, we're like getting right up on the end of this. Um, is there anything else you wanted to get out before we wrap it up?
1: No, I mean, I, I just love, love coming on and talking about value. It is such a simple, simple nuance that you can inject into everything in the business. And it's just incredible how many people lose sight of it I feel fortunate in a way that they do because it's given me tremendous opportunity to grow a business much faster than I thought I would have been able to otherwise, but it's such a valuable, valuable topic to talk about, to keep on the radar, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak about it.
0: Evan, uh, it was a really great conversation. I appreciate it. So uh, thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that creating happy customers and your business is a lot like brain surgery. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive over you insane And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues Cause you'll be singing those old, don't know value blues